find Daniel chapter 3 in your Bibles. Daniel chapter 3, standing up for what you believe. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. Now, why do you think he might have made an image of gold? Hmm? From his dream, okay, from back in chapter 2, right? Because what did Daniel say about him back in chapter 2? He was the head of gold, right? Okay. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up. I read one of the theologians, one of the reasons that he did it was he wanted to unite all the religions. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about that. We will. In the context of the message, sure will. Uh, he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You're commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Now if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I've made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed 
against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, their outer garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him, who set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I, take, I, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their house is laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Folks, the times that we are in certainly call for faith. These are dangerous times. I want to read something to you. You've uh, heard me read some of these excerpts before. A book by uh, Dr. Joseph Stowell, who used to be over at Moody uh, Bible Institute. He's got a book out called The Trouble with Jesus. The trouble with Jesus. He says the Chicago Leadership Prayer Breakfast is an annual event held the first Friday after the week of Thanksgiving. If you work in Chicago, attending the breakfast is the religious thing to do, second only to showing up at church on uh, Christmas and Easter. I've gone to the event for the last 15 years. I can remember years ago when the name of Jesus was freely used in prayers and sermons alike at the breakfast. And though that has been slowly changing, this year's event was marked by what seemed to be an international, uh, or excuse me, intentional effort to eliminate references to Jesus from the platform. If it weren't for the marvelous music of the Wheaton College choirs who unashamedly sang about Jesus, the whole morning would have drifted by without the mere mention of His name. 
I doubt if the choir master had been required to submit the text to screen them for references to Jesus given what, given what took place in the rest of the program. The MC opened the early morning get-together by reading an excerpt from Diane X bestseller, A New Religious America, How a Christian Country Has Become the World's Most Religiously Diverse Nation. He then underscored that diversity of religion in America now demands a new paradigm regarding the expression of our faith. He called for a fresh wind of cooperation and tolerance. His words set the stage for all that was to follow. A representative of Islam chanted his prayer in the name of Allah, a woman rabbi, a Catholic priest, and a minister from a characteristically liberal Protestant denomination, each led in prayer in a coordinated sequence of prayers and then finished by praying in unison. I kept waiting to hear it, but Jesus' name was not mentioned even once. No one said that he wasn't welcome, but the message was clear. All our gods are to be equal. And when that's the agenda, the authentic Jesus is trouble. It's difficult to include one who is claimed to be the only way to God when a diversity of paths to God is being celebrated. What was unspoken in the symbolism of the prayers was made unmistakably plain in the message that followed. The rector of Trinity Church, Wall Street, New York City, was introduced as being deeply involved in the problems and ministries surrounding the disaster of September the 11th, 2001. I looked forward to what he had to say. He proved to be an excellent communicator as he charmed us with his wit and well-timed humor. We were deeply moved as he related stories of tragedy and triumph at Ground Zero. However, as his message progressed, he put into words my worst fears about post-9-11 America. In essence, he celebrated the fact that after September the 11th, a whole new sense of the importance of God had returned to America. As he put it, theology is the name of the game after 9-11, but he noted Given the broad diversity of religions in America, we now need to give up the traditions that divide, divide those of us who believe in God. He praised the diversity the prayer segment had expressed. It was then that I began to realize why Jesus was unwelcome. He was telling us in no uncertain terms that an only way Jesus didn't fit into the re new religious order any longer. Folks, dangerous times. The Bible says we're to live lives of faith. In fact, in Hebrews 11, verse 6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Imagine that, folks. The Bible is saying, without faith, you and I cannot please God. Look at how that verse continues. He rewards those who seek him. Now that doesn't mean that living out what you believe is always easy, and Hebrews 11 is a testimony to that. 
To live what we believe to be men and women of faith means that we're going to have to be men and women of conviction. I heard it said one time that an opinion is that which you hold as personal preference. A belief is something you simply give mental assent to. But a conviction is something that grips you and changes you. We need to be men and women of conviction. And I want to ask you this evening, what are your convictions? Where do they come from? What are they based upon? How far are you willing to go before you give up or compromise those convictions? Are you willing to live out your convictions even if it were to mean that you would suffer for doing so? Now those are valid questions for a Christian. Daniel 3 is a great testimony to standing up for what you believe even at a high personal cost. It is a moving story of courage and conviction. Now today we need people of faith like this. We need people of integrity. People who can't be bought. People who can't be bribed. People whose convictions aren't dictated by the crowd or circumstances but rather convictions dictated by God and the Word of God. Now let's remember the setting. They've been taken captive. Daniel, Shadrach, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego taken captive. Daniel interprets the king's dream. He's rewarded. Nebuchadnezzar proclaims there's no God like Daniel's God. Now Nebuchadnezzar hadn't become a believer yet. He's actually not going to become a believer, I don't think, until the end of chapter 4. He simply says at this point, there's no God like Daniel's God. And then probably it's believed that as much as maybe 20, 20 years pass between chapters 2 and 3. 20 years have now gone by. Now so far, Daniel's three friends that we were introduced to in chapter 1 have kind of been back in the shadows. We don't hear a great deal of them. And Daniel's been the one uh, out in the forefront and so you and I might be tempted to wondering how strong their convictions are. They're mentioned in chapters 1 and 2 along with Daniel, but are their convictions as strong as Daniel's? Well, chapter 3 is going to answer that question. Now apparently Daniel's not present at this point because if he were, no doubt he would have been right there along with his three friends. Remember by this time Daniel's the prime minister and he's going out on a lot of travels and he's representing the king in government affairs. And so apparently he's not even in town when this event happens. Well first thing I want you to notice with me tonight is that Convictions take courage in those first 12 verses. Notice what Nebuchadnezzar does in verse 1. He erects this great image. It's an ego thing meant to honor him. He must have felt pretty good about himself. Uh, he was an able general who reigned 40 years and he never lost a battle. Very capable leader. Very capable military leader as well. 
And back in chapter 2, Daniel had already described him as being that head of gold. Now that wasn't good enough apparently. He wanted it all. He wanted the whole statue to be about him. And so he builds an image in honor of himself and his accomplishments. Now a lot of commentators think it might have been an image of himself. Or maybe an image of one of the Babylonian gods like Marduk. It's 90 feet tall, it's 9 feet wide. You say, boy, that's big. But as commentators point out, statues of that size were not unknown in the ancient world. And so modern commentators will say, don't let the size of that cause you to wonder about the historicity of this because... uh, uh, John Walford, for instance, goes around, talks about some of the different kingdoms at that time and and some of the various statutes that we know about from history, some massive scaled figures and so forth. And this is like that. 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide. Now one thing we're not told is whether it was pure gold or not. Some think probably not that it was overlaid with gold. They, the scholars also wonder if maybe it was on a, a pedestal base that went up a certain height so that the statute would be... And, and that, that st- the, the pedestal base was included in that 90 feet. The pedestal base and the statue 90 feet tall. Now, assuming that it might have been pure gold, though, listen to what Bob Thyme says about it. He says, let us assume for a moment that the image was half as thick as it was wide, or four and a half feet. Using these three dimensions, 90 by 9 by four and a half, we would find the volume to be uh, 3,645 cubic feet, or over 4,400,000 pounds. Even at a pre-inflation rate, an old rate of $33 an ounce, this spectacular statue would have cost about $2.3 billion. Now, not only does that give us an idea of the fantastic wealth of Nebuchadnezzar's empire, but it reveals the extent of his egomania. Now, what's the plan? Everybody's to bow down to this statue, right? Probably a twofold purpose in this, an attempt by Nebuchadnezzar to exalt himself and also, as Claude was talking about, an attempt to consolidate his rule under one religion. It's probably a political thing as much as a religious thing. Because remember what the Babylonians did, they captured people and they acclimated them into Babylonian society and, 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 and so their society... Uh, may have had the potential of various factions and because of that Nebuchadnezzar wants to put an end to this. He wants everybody to be politically and religiously the same. Politically correct and religiously correct and controlled. Now Nebuchadnezzar is going to have a ceremony that deifies himself and his false gods, verses 2 through 3. We see there seven seven different classes of officials that are named that are to be present. It's assumed they're listed in order of importance or authority. It's a great celebration in the Babylonian Empire. Probably made front page news of the Babylonian times. On the TV station the next morning, Good morning, Babylon. 
Now, if people, some from the general population also in, involved, it's been estimated probably at least 100,000 people were there. And you'll see numbers that float. Some will estimate numbers as high as 300,000 people were there. Nebuchadnezzar's got a preacher. He's got a choir. We know he wasn't Baptist, though, because he didn't have anybody passing the offering plate. Well, the command was clear. When the band plays, let everybody bow down and worship. And if you don't, look at what's going to happen. Now, boy, that's, that's some thread, isn't it? Bow or burn, it's your choice. How did the Jews kill people? They stoned them. Had the Romans kill people later on? They crucified them. Had the Babylonians kill people? They burned them to death. In fact, in Jeremiah 29, 22, it speaks of how Jeremiah roasted Zedekiah and Ahab in the fire. Now, as Jeremiah 29, 22. And so the command is given here. Everybody bow or burn. And as everybody bowed, these three would not. Now I want you to imagine this scene. Here you're up on the plain of Dura. And here's this, here's this sea of people out there. And all these people bowing down. You see a sea of backs. As everybody's bowing down. The command's given. Everybody bows down. And here's this sea, great sea of people's backs bowing down. And as you're looking out over that sea of maybe as many as 300,000 people, three lone figures are standing. They're not bowing. Now they could have argued what? While in Babylon, do as the Babylonians do. They could have reasoned or uh, just kind of taught themselves into the fact that, you know what, we'll bow on the outside, but we're not going to bow on the inside. Or they could have reasoned, you know what, we'll bow for now. We're not really bowing. We don't really mean it. And we're going to get busy working harder from the inside to try to change some of these things. But we're going to go ahead and bow and just try to work later on over the course of the next months and years, try to get policies changed and all. They could have reasoned all sorts of things like that. Do people do that today? Sure they do, don't they? Men and women today have all kinds of excuses they give why they're not going to live lives of conviction. These guys had conviction. And convictions take courage. Now, where do convictions come from? They come from the Word of God. What had God told the people in, back in Exodus chapter 20? You're to have no other gods before me. No other gods. No idols. You're not even to take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That was very clear in the Old Testament. These boys had been raised in good Hebrew homes back there in Judea or maybe they lived in, in Jerusalem and, and they had been trained in the Word of God and brought up in the Word of God and raised there in the temple and they had gotten it. They would understood. 
the monotheism of, of the Jewish faith that they're to have no other gods other than Jehovah God. God is the one who had led them out of Egypt, planted them there in the promised land. They'd seen all of God's great miracles and, and, and they knew beyond a doubt that there's only one God. And they got that conviction from the Word of God. Now folks... Where are we to get our convictions? From the Word of God. Remember that parable Jesus told too about the builders? One hears the Word of God, goes in one ear and out the other, and he says he's building a house and it's on sand and the, and the winds are going to come, the rain's going to come, floodwaters are going to rise, and what's going to happen to that guy's house? It's going to collapse. But the one who hears my word, accepts them, puts them into practice, is going to be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. Was he spared trials? No. Wind still came to that guy's house. Rain still came. Flood water still came. But what was the difference? The house stood. Convictions come from the Word of God. That's where these boys got their convictions from. From the Scripture. And I want you to notice something else about convictions. Where do they have to be settled? When do they have to be settled? Before the trials come. Ahead of time. A lot of people wait till they get in the midst of a trial in their life and they don't have a good foundation in the Word of God and they don't even know the right decisions to make in the middle of that trial. And I'll tell you what, when you're in the middle of the trial, you ain't got time necessarily to go and take a crash course on the Word of God, see what the Bible teaches. You need to know ahead of time. Now, look at the accusation beginning in verse 8 and going all through verse 12. What do you think motivated this accusation? What motivated the accusation against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Jealousy. A plus, Claude. I'm glad I got one student tonight paying attention. Why were they jealous? Why do you think they were jealous? What, what did they say to the king about these three Hebrews? Oh, king, these three Hebrews that you've put in charge over us. See, maybe they're probably, sounds like they're even getting a little bit of dig in at Nebuchadnezzar, doesn't it? Nebuchadnezzar, these three, there's three Hebrews. Everybody's bowing, but they won't. And by the way, king, these are three Hebrews you put in charge. Jealousy. Yep, that's right. Exactly. All the way back from chapter 1, we see how respected Daniel and his three companions were. They were respected. 
I tell you what, everybody they had been associated with had come to know that Daniel and his three friends were men of, they were men of character. And, and they were recognized for being men of character. And so what? They were elevated up through the ranks. You reckon that, that created some jealousy, didn't it? Now, I want you to see beginning in verse 13, convictions involve faith. The king's furious, but he evidently thinks a good deal of these men. So what, what's he do? He gives them another chance, doesn't it? That, that tells us right there too. He'd come to respect them, right? He gave them another chance. He calls them in for a personal interview and an accounting of the situation. But clearly he intends to live up to his threats. Boys, you get one more chance, but if you don't. Now look at verses 16 to 18 again. Look at those uh, three verses. They say, O king, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They knew God could save them. They, they, they didn't know if God would save them. But either way, they were going to obey God. What's that? That's faith. They've got courage. They've got confidence. They've got commitment. All that's involved in faith. What was the result of their faith? They have peace, don't they? Peace. Whatever happened, they knew they were in God's hands. And there's no safer place to be than in God's hands. Think about this situation. Think about the irony of what's going on here. The three Hebrew boys have peace. All these other guys are what? They're jealous. Their hearts are churning. The king's angry. His heart's churning. The three guys that are actually the ones in trouble, the three guys that might lose their lives... They're the ones who have peace. You know, a lot of people want to try to make deals with God. God, I'll serve you if. If you'll let me keep my job, I'll do this, 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 and this. Oh, God, if you'll, if you'll just do this in my kids' lives or grandkids' lives or... Uh, if you'll bring my husband back or bring my wife back or do this or that. I, I tell you what, as a, as a pastor, I run into people all the time who are trying to make deals with God. God, if you'll do this, if you'll do that, I promise you, God, then I'll serve you. But what were these guys doing? A no-strings-attached type of commitment. Maybe he'll save us. He's certainly able Maybe he won't. But either way, king, we're not going to compromise our convictions. Our God's been too good to us. We know he's real. We know he's alive. We've seen what our God's able to do. And we're not going to bow down and worship your image. We're not going to become idolaters. We're not going to compromise our faith. We're not going to go along with everybody else just because everybody else is doing it. We're going to remain true to Jehovah God. 
That's faith. And folks, let's don't underestimate how much faith they had because you and I know the end of the story. They didn't know the end of the story. For all they knew at this point, they were going to die. Reminds me of Job. Job 13, 15 said, Though he slay me, yet I will serve him. Somebody once said, I love this quote, when, when the servant of God can do nothing else, he can at least die like a Christian. Isn't that great? When the servant of God can do nothing else, he can at least die like a Christian. Our God's able. Our God's able. That, that's a phrase you see all through the Bible. And our God is able. What do you, what do you find about that in, in Hebrews 7.25? What's the writer of Hebrews saying? Hebrews 7.25. Our God's able to do what? Anybody know that verse? That's another one. That's Ephesians 3.20. So, well, I was going to come to that. What's the three, Ephesians 3.20 say? He is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we could ever even imagine or ask. Hebrews 7.25 says He's able to what? He's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him. Speaking of Jesus Christ, He's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him. What's Paul say in 2 Timothy 1.12? Anybody know that verse? I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I have committed unto him until that day or against that day. Our God's able. Nebuchadnezzar, he might save us, he might not. But he's always been faithful and true to us. He's never let us down. We're not going to turn our backs on God now. We're going to remain true to Him. And we're not going to bow and worship your false idols and your false gods. Faith. Convictions. Well, beginning in verse 19, I want you to see thirdly, convictions bring scorn. Nebuchadnezzar's countenance changes towards him. Do you notice that? In verse 19, it says, Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed. What do you think he was thinking? What was he thinking at this point? Why don't these guys just go along? Why they got their nose all out of joint? Why don't they just go? Everybody else is going along. I got a kingdom here to rule and everybody out here is bound down. Nobody else is giving me any trouble. Why don't these three guys just go along? You reckon the world has that opinion of us today? Just keep y'all's faith in your church. Keep it inside the walls of the church. Don't take it out just keep it inside there. Why don't y'all just zip it up? You want to be men and women of conviction? You can be men and women of conviction. You can be men and women of conviction Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night in your, in your place of worship. Keep it there. 
Don't bring your convictions out here. Don't bring your faith out here onto the street. Just keep your faith behind closed doors. You reckon that's probably what some leaders think when Christians become outspoken? That's exactly what they think, isn't it? Good point. <laughs> Who they think they are challenging me? Nobody ever challenges me. I'm the king. Oh. <laughs> well, he calls for them to be thrown into the fiery furnace. The Babylonians had these. It's it said that the Babylonians' fiery furnaces look like this big old huge picture in your mind a big old huge milk bottle with an opening at the top. And oftentimes down somewhere along the bottom, the fat part of the bottom, they had some type of opening or a way that you could look in and see what was going down in there, going on with the fire. And, and they used these big old uh, furnaces to, to bake all their bricks. Well, Nebuchadnezzar orders them to be cast into that. Fire heated up so hot that it kills the guys who throw them in. <clears throat> he leaves the, all these glorious clothes on. Remember these guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these are, these are rulers, these are men of statue that he's been trying to make Babylonian disciples out of so he can turn certain parts of his uh, rulership over to them. So, I mean, these guys are gloriously dressed in all that eastern garb uh, uh, of rulers. But what's Nebuchadnezzar going to do? He's going to make an example out of them. Well, another thing we've got to remember about convictions, they cost. And we need to remember that today as believers. Our convictions might cost us something in the world. And God may not save us from every single trial. But one thing's for sure, He can save you from that ultimate trial. Hell, he can save you from that, can he? But what's the problem here? These guys won't burn. Can, you, can I have you write down something in the margin of your Bible? I want you to write down Genesis 1.1. Folks, if you can believe Genesis 1-1, you don't, you don't need to have any doubts whatsoever about this verse right here. What's Genesis 1-1 say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, why should it be so hard for people to believe this passage right here that's going on in Daniel chapter 3? If God creates the heavens and the earth, can He do this? Sure. And Luke 1, 37, I believe it is, when Mary says to the angel, that's impossible. I can't be expecting a baby. I'm a virgin. That's impossible what you're telling me. And what's the angel say? It's the, whole, the Holy One has overshadowed you and you conceived by the Holy Ghost 
Nothing is impossible with God. Luke 1.37 God was with them in Isaiah 43.2. That verse says, When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they'll not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you'll not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. Boy, that was, that's a verse just for these guys, right? God preserved them through His power. He preserved them through His presence. They didn't, he, they didn't even have the smell of fire on them. And He says, whoa, didn't we throw three in there? I see four. And one of them looks like, now John Walter points out in the Hebrew and, and the Aramaic here, the uh, uh the, the, the word that's used here in the original text of the Aramaic, he said, John Walver points out now everywhere else, this word is used in the Aramaic in, in the plural. It probably should be translated a son of the gods. And he says, you know what, probably his, his theology wasn't developed quite like ours. What do we say? We see a fourth one walking there and who is it? The Son of God. Now he expressed it as he would have back then, just in his paganism, a son of the gods. Walford says it, it is in the plural. Sure. But who do we know that is? That was, who do we know that was in there with them? Jesus. Right. No doubt some kind of image, glowing, radiant. And he thought, boy, whoever that is, that looked like a God with them. Exactly, the glorified Christ before the incarnation. Same image John probably saw of Jesus in Revelation 1 when he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day worshiping and he turned to hear that voice speaking to him. Read Revelation 1, that description of the glorified Christ in Revelation 1. That's what Nebuchadnezzar saw. He saw Jesus. Jesus didn't keep them from the furnace, but he kept them through the furnace. And he was in there with them. What's that say to you as a believer about where's God when you're going through the fires? He's right there with you. You're not by yourself. You're not alone. Absolutely. And that's maybe why he lets you go through those trials to begin with. He's more interested in growing character in you as James 1 um, Two through four says. That's right. Well, some lessons. Faith will be tested, and previous victories do not ensure absence of tests and trials. You think all these guys have been through. They they were they were tested back in chapter one when Nebuchadnezzar had invaded their homeland, captured them, brought them to Babylon. Isn't that enough? They were they were tested back then. They, along with Daniel, Daniel 1, 8, they remain true to God. Shouldn't that be enough? 
Folks, the Bible never says God just puts us through one series of tests way back there somewhere in the past and never, ever, ever again brings any test into our lives. The Bible doesn't teach that. Jesus said in this world, there are trials and tribulations in this world. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Faith will be tested. Believers aren't exempt from this. And you know what? I, I think there's, there's grave danger in that. Sometimes, sometimes somebody becomes a believer in Christ and, and maybe they, there's a, a trial or a test or some big disappointment going on in their life that draws them to faith in Christ and they respond, they give their heart and life to Jesus, they make their faith in Christ public and they walk that aisle and what, what do some of them think? They think, aha, you know what? I've become a Christian now. God's going to take care of me and I, I'm never, ever, ever going to face any more trials. I had all these hardships. I've become a believer now. Made my faith public. Been baptized. Joined the church. I'm home free. No more trials. That's not what the Bible says though. We want to be very careful that we don't give new believers, young believers, the idea that just because they become Christians, all their days of trouble's over. Secondly, the world resents persons with strong convictions. Have you ever noticed that? The world, there's pressures, all sorts of pressures out in the world to just kind of bring people in from strong convictions on either on any side, really. Just kind of bring everybody together in the middle, a big melting pot, just kind of, kind of let everybody just sort of chill out and just kind of hang loose together in the middle. Nobody, nobody have strong convictions about everything, just kind of everybody sort of be the same. That's the pressure the world puts on us, isn't it? And somebody like a Daniel or a Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego comes along, strong convictions and won't compromise. The world doesn't like that. You know, it's a shame too. Sometimes in the Christian, the Christian community sadly can even turn on other Christians who have strong convictions. Why do we do that? I guess maybe sometimes we feel guilty that. Our convictions, we know they ought to be that, our convictions ought to be that strong too, and we ought to take a stand. And so maybe we kind of resent it. Somebody else should take, I don't know. I'm just suggesting. Maybe, maybe that's one reason sometimes the Christian community turns on somebody with strong convictions. Because it's a testimony against us. That maybe our convictions aren't strong enough. Thirdly, God can keep you from the trial or God can keep you through the trial he spares some from the trial they might be facing something some big decision in their life some big moment of trial and you know what uh, God might answer some prayer something, somebody about to go through something really bad and God answers a prayer and they come to church next week, hallelujah, my worst fears were not realized. That check came in the mail or that doctor's report came and, 
and, and, and the cancer's gone or whatever, that, that bankruptcy about to happen, boy, a check came in, I'm, I'm free, I'm not going to have to go through that. That happens sometimes. But you know what? Doesn't happen all the time, does it? God lets some go through the trial. Yes. Corey Timboom, great, great statement by her. She, her favorite in her home in Holland, she had this beautiful tapestry that um, some lady had crocheted or knitted for, whatever you ladies call that, you know, where the crocheting, knitting, whatever the difference is, I'm not always sure. But anyway, she had that picture up high and turned around so you saw the back and just all that mangle of different colored strings and you, she'd look up at that and it just didn't make any sense at all. You turn that picture around and it was this beautiful scene. But she had it turned around backwards on purpose. Corey Ten Boom said the reason she did it was a reminder to her that her life at any given time may just look like a mangled knot of strings that she couldn't make sense of. But she was reminded that God saw her life from the other side. And He was weaving together something beautiful. And at the moment, she may not see it, but God could see it. Okay. Any other thoughts, observations, comments? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Right. Yes, yes. Uh, usually in the Old Testament when it talks about the angel of the Lord, that's a pre-incarnate uh, appearance of Jesus Christ. And uh, remember Jesus', Jesus life didn't start in Bethlehem, just the incarnation. The incarnation's all. Jesus, G, John, John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. In the Greek there it means the Word was literally face to face with God. And what's being communicated there is on equal standing. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was there in the beginning. And, and the phrase is there in the beginning means when, when the beginning of time came around as we know it, guess who was already there? Jesus and then he says and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us also Philippians 2 Paul talks about Christ coming to earth emptying himself not of his deity but of his former glory in heaven and suffering to the point of death on the cross and then dying and the resurrection and ascension and God exalted him back to his um, heavenly glory so yeah all through the bible in genesis 1 26 god said let us create man in our image plural and and the uniqueness of that hebrew word there 
the, the singular but with a plural ending. So very, very unique Hebrew uh, phrases the way it's the Hebrew is done there in Genesis 1. So the, the full deity of Christ, fully human, wants his incarnation, fully human, fully divine, but that was not his beginning. All, never been a time. I know it blows people's mind. When we think of eternity, I think it's at least it's easier for me to think about eternity forward. You think all the way into the future, there'll never, ever, ever be a time that is not. And, and that's easier to grasp than think about going back in time. But that's true too. It's never, ever, 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 ever been a time. Never, ever, ever been a time that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit didn't exist. But yet, to answer your question, not just here, but many places, beginning in Genesis, and the angel of the Lord appearing to Abraham there in, I think it was Genesis 18, and, uh, about Sodom and Gomorrah and so forth, uh, pre-existent Christ. Good question. Thank you, sir. Okay. It started out so easy, something like this. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Not sure. Now he. Uh, now I'm not sure he stood up in the middle of that meeting, but Joseph Stoll has been a man publicly to take bold stands for Christ. I'm not sure. I don't. I don't know that he did at that meeting, but he has certainly been a conservative Christian who has taken some very bold stands in society and not been ashamed of his faith. So I can't say that about that one incident, but his overall life, yes, he has. Yes, it's believed that Job is probably the oldest book in the Bible. Yes. Hmm. Yes, uh, it's certainly in Job 1. And, and I believe the sons of God in Genesis 6 is, uh, is also referring to some type of angelic not not the sons of Seth there and not just the kings of that day that could be called sons of God but I, th I think it's talking about angelic beings uh, in Genesis 6 as well in Genesis 6 or Job 1 mm-hmm Great text. Before Ab Abraham, back in the book of Genesis, beginning of the Old Testament, Jesus said in John 8, in the New Testament, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and was glad. Before Abraham was, I am. Good, very good example of 
the text, the pre pre incarnate Christ. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a series. I I don't have them memorized all the different occurrences in the Old Testament. Many times, uh, you see uh, the uh, um, the pre-incarnate Christ. That that can be your homework. Go home this week and look up all the times in the Old Testament that scholars believe when it talks about. Uh, the angel of the Lord, all the times in the Old Testament that scholars say that was the pre-incarnate Christ. Pre-incarnate Christ. That's your homework assignment for next week. Okay? Okay. Right. Good point. Little compromises along the way add up and really flaw our character, don't they? Just little, you know, compromise, little here, little there, little there, little there. Nobody will know. Pretty soon, you know, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, boy, we've just, we've compromised our character and conviction so much. 